seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Welcome to mile 166 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Columbus Running Company. It is great to be back with you, Travis, here alongside my main man, Phil. How's the doctor? Oh, doing well, Travis. Enjoying a uh, nice week off between Christmas and New Year's and refreshing and rejuvenating before the semester starts back in another week or so. Good to what, see you, man. It is great to see you. Well-deserved rest. You've been getting in some good training, and you are in front of a shiny new laptop computer. You look fantastic. Oh, aren't the graphics on this thing fantastic? Man, Santa was good to me this year. <laughs> yeah. You earned it. What was the number one gift at home for the little one? Oh, it's got to be the trip to Disney we have coming up in uh, January. Oh, so, I didn't know about that, Phil. Yeah, That's so that was that was the big gift for her and for the family. So my wife has been planning our siege of Disney come end of January and doing all the research of what lines we need to be and when and what dinners we need to be to maximize our experience. But yeah, that's uh, that's on the calendar for the end of January. I assume you have planned this around some sort of Disney marathon for you? Well, you know, I've tried to coordinate my morning runs in with our routine and our travels, but since we're staying on the park premise, we got to be there 30 minutes before those gates open to make sure we are in mm. line to hit every single ride that we possibly can. So I'm planning a down week for that week. Okay. Well, that's good. The way you've been building up, you've timed this up well. You might be due for a down week by that point. With the, that's right. <laughs> the, the training trending upward. That's a wonderful Fine. gift. That'll be a lot of fun. Our gift to the running world tonight, as best we can, we hope to dig deeper into the the biggest running training trends of 2023. So we have three big topics that we would like to unpack a little more. We've touched on these before. The first one we'll get into is the Norwegian model. We discussed this in detail in mile 144, the basic structure of the model and its scientific underpinnings. And our goal tonight is to look more about, as this has just blown up in popularity, uh, with the incredible access to information and understanding of the training as we know it, as employed by the Ingebrigtsen brothers, most famously, and the new Norwegian young gun, Narve Nordas, who had a great year as well. We want to look at how that's being applied, the questions we have, what it's looking like in practice for runners in different parts of the world and at different ability and skill levels. So as a basic review, the Norwegian model features two days each week with a threshold running session in the morning and again in the afternoon, as well as a hill rep session each weekend. Now, that hill rep session is uh, not from the original 
guidance from who we might call the godfather of the Norwegian system several decades ago, Marius Bakken. Bakken refers more broadly to uh, what he calls an X element, something that is a faster pace of, of higher quality. The Ingebrigtsens molded that to include the hill reps. In part, that works because this is not a training system they use the entire year. This is like a nine of 12 months, an extended base and race prep phase before they do their specific work. It's all done in the context of high volume training, 100 plus miles per week for those guys. Uh, and those threshold sessions are designed to elicit certain levels of blood lactate accumulation. You're staying below the point at which lactate floods the system more quickly than it can be used as fuel or than it can be cleared. Uh, or more simply, we might say it's below the point at which the effort moves from sustainable to unsustainable. You always feel like you could go a little farther, like you could do another rep. And that is achieved with running at varying paces. So Phil, I think that's a key starting point. Mm -hmm. One, different paces allow for different physiological adaptations, uh, while also reminding us that threshold running is about a running state, not just a pace. We have historically anchored this in our race pace, like the, the Daniels definition. We've talked about it on the, the program as maybe somewhere in this 15K to half marathon pace range. What we can do is create this state and this stimulus in shorter, faster reps like 400s at 10K on short rest, or longer controlled reps, like miles at or slightly faster than marathon effort. So I think that language around threshold running and better fleshing out our understanding of it's not just running an exact pace all the time, it's eliciting certain responses within the body. That's been an incredibly valuable outcome of incorporating the Norwegian model more broadly. Well, and I think out of that, there are a couple of important things to highlight that one, this is something that's been distributed really to a degree across all levels. You know, Marius Backen even has some stuff out there for the three hour marathoner for the three and a half hour marathoner uh, that this isn't necessarily, at least in their usage, applied to the, the tip of the spirit elite athletes. Now it's, not necessarily to work out today, like you might see the Ingebrigtsens use or uh, Christian Blumenfeld from the, uh, the triathlon world. But it's something that potentially could be used by a broad variety of folks. But I think the more important point is that the intensity is very, very controlled. So, you know, in this system, while we might see a workout of, of 400 repeats, you know, those 400 repeats where traditionally we might have seen them done at say 5k race pace it's going to be much slower but potentially with a much slower or excuse me a much shorter rest off of that type of workout as well mm -hmm. but you can also incorporate repetitions anywhere from 300 to 400 meters up to a mile plus we're just toying with the the paces that those are, are run at and the recoveries that that break up those intervals when you said that last sentence, Phil, that kind of reminded me of just, you know, good coaching, yeah. <laughs> like that basic principle. 
two things I'm going to come back to and build on from your comments there that were great, Phil. One is that uh, the variable of control, it's hugely significant. We'll dive into it a little bit more. And two is a delineation between the Norwegian model and perhaps some scalable workouts or just a, a more broadly a training approach that mirrors some of what they're doing, but is more effective for the average person. And, and that to me is going to be a really important takeaway because with all the hype around this, so many people who have who compete at a relatively high or high level have been diving all into these double threshold sessions and they might not be the best answer for everyone. They might not even be the best answer at the highest level, but certainly for the person who is more of a casual recreational runner, there's other options that we should consider. So some important notes to me then, Phil, to build from that. Uh, as I've studied this more, seen it become more popular, talked with our athletes about it. Uh, the first point that I want to make very clear is double sessions, meaning not just double runs in a day, but but double workouts, uh, we might call it here in the West, are not a new endeavor in endurance training. Uh, we can look- been around for. 70, 80 years with Igloy and some of the other old school methods. Yeah, you hit the first guy I was going to mention. We can go to the 50s into the 60s uh, with Igloy's remarkably successful runners at, say, 5,000 meters, uh, 1,500 meters. I have in front of me right now a training log from when Vin Lanana was coaching at Stanford 20 plus years ago, and I see it there. Threshold reps in the morning, 300 meter reps at mile pace in the afternoon. So it's not this double threshold system, but it is a double session uh, for a highly successful college coach at multiple stops. Uh, and we know Renato Canova has been using his occasional special block, he calls it, with two hard sessions. It's, it's infrequent, but they uh, will put it maybe once or twice in a cycle with his elite marathoners for years. So we're seeing it across different uh, distances being used over time. The, the double session is not necessarily new. Uh, Backen even postulated about three sessions. If you uh, read into his work in kind of in response to what the Ingebrigtsens did when he went back and uh, reviewed 20 years of his development of this program, he thought there could be a place for a third session, possibly at midday with the mm -hmm. shortest, fastest reps uh, couched by more traditional threshold work. In all those systems, though, Phil, a critical component is recovery. You need to go into double sessions well recovered. You need to recover between the sessions, and then you need to recover well after. And so when I look at this stuff, the first question I ask in applying it to outside of the elite of the elite, the, the tip of the spear, as you said, is do you live the life of a professional runner? <laughs> you know, think about the amount of sleep, work stress, nutrition family time, it might be exceptionally difficult to effectively use double sessions twice a week without that same recovery element. And that's a concern for me when I see the number of competitive Americans testing this approach, even trickling down to like the high school level. You know, we're seeing it more across college. In that case, you know, you don't have the work stress, but you do have a lot of social life stress. The recovery to me, down to the high school level, this seems like a very large demand on the athlete, Phil. To me, that's where this gets tricky from a clinical side, is that 
we're traditionally used to the rhythm of a weekend long run and then maybe a Tuesday and a Friday session where one may be a threshold, one may be an interval. And folks generally have an idea of how to ramp and build off of that. But with that type of structure, you're getting two to three days between each each individual session, whereas mm -hmm. now we're shifting that to six hours, eight hours or so. And this is something that, that I've played around with from the, the clinical side of things as some specific individuals have come back from injury looking at like bone loading and distributing load through the week that sometimes that might be a, a, an interesting idea to allow us to essentially condense load on one end where we're having a, a day where it's, it's, there's a lot of impact, but uh, and specifically we're, we're dealing with bone stress injuries, which bone recovers in about a six hour window. So you have a session in the morning that's much less than would be your traditional session, but still a, still a threshold session. And then you come back six, eight hours later, have another session that, you know, again, is much less than what a traditional threshold session would be. So in that single day, you may have a little bit more total load than you would over a, a traditional session. Uh, but in each of those individual sessions, you it's a little bit less than a traditional load, but condensing it on that end allows us to spread workout a little bit more and allow recovery, you know, so you're not turning around in two days and having another interval session. You're allowing a little bit more recovery until your, your next session a couple of days later, but this, that's still in somewhat of a very controlled environment. And I think implementing this on the, the average, let's call it recreational level, is, is going to be quite challenging in terms of navigating how much load we're introducing by incorporating this. Yeah, the bedrock principle of this approach is accumulating as much time in the zone as possible without going off a training cliff because the load of the individual session is much more manageable. For these Norwegian professional athletes, we're getting nearly two hours per week of running very close to the lactate threshold. It's a significant amount. It's significantly higher than traditional American conceptions of the uh, continuous tempo run or the cruise intervals when we might get half that or less frequently. You know, there's, there's a lot of good training systems that might do 30 minutes in a week of, of threshold running. Uh, so the, the Norwegian goal is to accumulate more and more in that zone. And you can't do that properly without excellent control of the effort, to your point earlier, Phil. And so it doubles down on the recovery point because Americans struggle at controlling threshold efforts. We are bad at overestimating our abilities and shifting just ever so slightly from training into the zone of straining. And if you don't have access to lactate testing or accurate heart rate data and don't have experience with understanding that feel and effort in this state, the risk of overdoing this training as compared to how the Norwegians designed it is very real. I'd take, for example, think about younger athletes. One, they are often less aerobically developed given their training volume over time. 
So they might have a significant gap between their 5K and half marathon paces because they never even run 13 miles. That's beyond, you know, they might go 10 to 12 miles for a a 5K training for their longest run. So in turn, they often overshoot the threshold pace and frequently will run it too fast because there is a chasm between their race pace and how aerobically developed at the lower ends of their aerobic spectrum that they are. They've, they've also been somewhat indoctrinated into a more moderate kind of gray zone pace on the recovery day. So they, they don't recover enough for the next session that's coming in a few days. And they, the, the less experienced athlete might be more likely to fall prey to the racing a session rather than using it as a workout trap that many mm-hmm. fall into. You know, take a good professional example here in the United States, Molly Seidel. She has used double threshold training for several years, but that's evolved where now she has moved to a 14-day training cycle because she does not believe she can get the adequate recovery in between to do this on like Tuesday and Thursday, as say Jakob Ingebrigtsen would do. If she does it on a Tuesday, she's getting at least two days of easy recovery and then coming back for a a next session on Friday. Her running is double threshold, not necessarily Norwegian because she's getting larger volumes, but in getting that larger volume on the single day of threshold work that she does, she understands, I need to recover from this. If you don't understand that necessity for recovery and you struggle to control effort level, that is a recipe for this system yielding burnout and plateau, which are at its core, when done well, what it's really good at avoiding and helping you to continually improve, Phil. Yeah. And I think the point on the recovery day can't be emphasized enough is that not only are these workouts very tightly controlled and right at that threshold, rather than at a sustained intensity that ends up elevating more and more as the workout progresses, but on those non-workout days, They're easy runs, and and this is something we've kind of hit on constantly, are what to to you and I would be considered insanely easy. Yeah. Uh, But that's something that I think whether it's culturally or whether it's just the the running scene in in the U.S., we struggle with. Yeah. Uh, So I, I don't think that point can be emphasized enough. Yeah, it, it's a cultural value of hard work. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But mm-hmm. harder isn't always better. More isn't always better. Harder is harder. More is more. And certainly that's not to say that less is always better either. Okay. It's, a, it's a delicate balance and you have to understand how to thread the needle. To extend that point a bit more, Phil, it's exceptionally significant to note the Norwegians never do continuous threshold running. It is always chunked in segments. I see some Americans who have adopted this doing the continuous tempo run as part of a double threshold system. And that's something entirely different than what the Ingebrigtsons do. Phil, Mm -hmm. your 20-minute tempo session is notably absent. That doesn't mean it's a bad, (laughs) it doesn't mean it's a bad workout. Uh Okay. It just doesn't fit in the system. Right. It just means it has a much higher training load than breaking that 20 minutes into four by five minutes, right? To to Mm -hmm. revert back to your point earlier on loading. And moreover, with short jog rests, we might be able to add a fifth rep and now get more time in the zone 
with the same or possibly even still less training load mm -hmm. than the 20 minute straight tempo. I, I was going to give you an opportunity there, Phil. There was a pause because I thought you wanted to defend your 20 minute tempo run. You know, I like to give you a hard time. <laughs> no, that, well, you've picked on me about the 20 minute tempo enough, but, but really a workout like that does not fit in the system because as you, with a session like that, you know, as you're in that 16th, 17th, 18th minute, that, load is higher than yeah would be possible to recover from to turn around and do a second session later that day i'm going to come to your defense now because i i think if you were to just look at this more globally as instructive training and look at the amount of time they do this work for and how they chunk it if you were scaling it down that 20 or 25 minute tempo run it could be immensely valuable it would have mm -hmm. to be done with control. That's, that, that's part of why I give you a hard time about it is because it's so often in the American system, like the last few minutes of it turn into a race and your effort level is just way too high. Mm -hmm. But if you do it with appropriate control, and I would even suggest you air toward a marathon effort and then get a short recovery and maybe some short, faster reps at the end of it. Like for example, 45 seconds on at 5k, 75 seconds easy times five reps or something, or maybe yeah. a few short hills where, where you layer the workout a little bit more, or you use that 20 minute tempo as a proper like C workout when you have maybe some half marathon pace segmented work on another day of the week and you keep this under control, then it's got a proper place in good training. Well, I think the value to that 20 minute workout is that it teaches you proper intensity control yes. and that if you hit that too fast, then you're falling off those last handful of minutes. But folks like the Inger Britsons or folks like Molly Seidel do not need to learn intensity control. You tell them to go run a 60 second 400 versus a 64 second 400, they can nail it within you know a few tenths of a second. But you take the average marathoner and ask them to tweak their intensity within a few seconds and they struggle to find that specific rhythm. So I think there's there's value to learning that intensity out of a 20-minute session, but not for somebody at that level. Furthermore, the example you gave, those folks in particular, the Ingebrigtsons, because now we're looking at track athletes who have the ability to race more, they do race more. And so mm -hmm that mental dialing in of the intensity and knowing psychologically what it's like to do a continuous bout, they would just counter by saying, look how often we race. We mm -hmm. learn that over years of racing, we understand what that demand is like. We don't need to do it all the time in our training. Yeah, yeah. All that leads to my biggest takeaway from the Norwegian, the Norwegian movement and the surveys of successful training more broadly is the biggest lesson of the Norwegian model in 2023, that we can all examine the amount of training sessions we do at just below that second lactate threshold and possibly get more time in this space while staying healthy having a more positive affect toward our running. I think that one's critically significant because when you start, yeah. when you start taking your load over the edge, right? That training load gets too high. That, that falls apart quickly, how you feel about your training. But if you continuously are going into your sessions, excited about the session, it suggests you're probably managing that training load a little better. So 
can we get more time in that space, a more positive affect toward our running and improve our fitness, this broadly improve fitness. I think the typical runner listening to us could do up to 30 minutes of broken work in this zone several times per week and see gains. And frankly, you could probably start with, if you're not doing it at all, just do it once and mm-hmm. you know, do it once, and, and, and then maybe there's a second one in the week. Maybe ultimately you get to a point where there's a third. Maybe you could complement this type of training with other sessions you enjoy, uh, or sessions that fill a weakness. Maybe those are like faster bouts uh, above critical speed, dipping just into the severe domain, or maybe they're long runs, but they're all done with proper dose. That could be your X element. It could simply be dumb it down, scale the model, try to get between 60 and 90 minutes of this running. It it would probably go a long way, but remember the stuff that you find joy in, in your training and properly dose that uh, like we each of us have sessions that we really enjoy or like a, a monogetti fart like that's a, a an intense 20 minute session i could use that and use this approach mm-hmm. i have to organize the week or 14 days or 10 days or whatever your cycle is appropriately and not put too much load in in what i surround that harder session with and i have to have appropriate recovery days so it doesn't mean eliminate that stuff but maybe just a general increase in this type of training is the big takeaway of what could be helpful that the Norwegians are doing. Phil, I'll wrap this section with a few thoughts and questions about the model. Mm-hmm. One is, what about the significance of aerobic development at, an, at a young age? We know this has been key for the Ingebrigtsens. They started very early. They had a large history of aerobic development at a young age. That's something that certainly benefited American runners of previous generations in all of their later training. We were just mm-hmm. generally a more active society at a younger age. You don't have to be elite at a young age. We're not suggesting that. And for your long-term development, it might be best to not be elite, but it certainly would affect how you take to this training system down the road. Well, and to add to that, I, I wonder how much of this is somewhat of a survivor bias as well. And mm-hmm. that, you know, even if you look at the Ingerbritsons themselves, Jakob and Philip have been very successful, but their brother Enric is, he was very successful as a junior, but is a recreational runner at this point, but was exposed to the very similar, similar training. And then looking across with like Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden, who are in the, you know, from the triathlon world, but that use this Norwegian approach. If you listen to those guys talk about their training, you know, they came out of these, these very intense sports schools as juniors, you know, using these type of systems and they've been very successful, but you know, how many folks were left in the wake that were also exposed to this training that just, just couldn't hang, uh, just couldn't handle that. That load. It's a great point. I think the counter would be that if you if you scale mm-hmm. and you simplify and you take the good lessons from this, the system on a dumbed down level has a potential to lean into the ability to be survivable. It, yeah. It's inherently designed to be that if done right for the athlete. Yeah. Uh, but it's Absolutely. a great point. And then a a last one here is, and this might be an episode we do around Olympic time, is, is this training best for time trialing or championship racing? 
Mm. Because most of us are competing, but often thinking about personal bests. Jakob Ingebrigtsen is chasing gold medals. And we've seen him beaten in the biggest mile races the past two years by Jake Whiteman and Josh Kerr when he didn't have pacers to get the pace out hot, use his strength based in this system. He had to race in a different way. And Mm. He was not as successful. I, I don't think any of us would turn down silver medals at world championships and the uh, you know <laughs> and, and and five thousand meter golds. But it's possible this threshold heavy emphasis might scale up best, meaning in distance, five thousand meters, ten thousand meters, half marathon training, particularly time trial type training for those distances, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to championship miling. We'll consider it again in the future, perhaps. We'll see how things play out this summer. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, Let's go to the the second big phenomenon in training in 2023. And this is largely thanks to NCAA cross-country champion Parker Valby. Uh, That is a little different lens through which we are viewing cross-training. I would also add, go back to our previous episode, 165. You can hear a a little bit about this from our our athlete, uh, Sakiko Minagawa from CRC Elite. Uh, She's using it in a very different way, it would seem, than Parker Valby. But there has been a renewed look at uh, what does cross-training look like? And how does it fit into the world of really advanced, highly competitive running? I have like four buckets that I think we can fit it into. Before we go there, Phil, I I think we need to ask a question that probably neither of us have an answer to. Mm -hmm. And that is what exactly does Parker Valby's cross-training or lack thereof actually look like? I think that's, well... That's almost a separate discussion from the role of cross training and how can we apply it uh, in itself. Because if you listen to her interviews, you know she's presented as if she's running, you know, maybe three days a week or so, and then spending hours on the elliptical or on the bike or what have you. But then you watch her race in NCAA's this past fall, and she just flat runs away from the field. And some of those girls are running, you know, sixty, eighty plus miles with multiple workouts a week and a lot of intensity to their training. And I'm somewhat skeptical that we're getting a full picture of what she's doing Mm -hmm. when she is that much better than the total sum of her competition. Right. The basic skeleton of the training perhaps seems true, that she's cross-training more than others. She's Mm cross-training perhaps at different intensity levels than uh, are common, that she has a a large aerobic background and base for years from which she's building on. But we haven't seen exact specifics on this. So it's a challenge for us. The reason I raise the question, Phil, is What often happens with the trends in training is we see that the elite athlete has done it. And so we think that is my road to better success. Mm -hmm. I see Ingebrigtsen doing double threshold, so I should do it. I see Parker Valby cross training a ton, so I should do it. And Sakiko raised a great point last week in saying that there's a whole bunch of different reasons people cross train. And there's a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of different methods for getting to your best, she had to apply it because she had injury issues that, you know, she had to figure out a way to get healthy and still get the work in. Um, yeah. 
And so I'll, I'll bring that up as kind of one of my main buckets of how we can use this. There, there's kind of 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B. I'll divide this up into. So, <laughs> so for point one, A and B, first is it's an aerobic complement. It, it's getting more aerobic work. Uh, Sakiko mentioned that it's something uh, she often uses in place of, say, a double run. Mm-hmm. And maybe at times it took place of a long run just for the impact on her body. Uh, so just base level aerobic work. In this way, I think it can be very successful for the less developed athlete too, the novice who just mm-hmm. needs to get in more training, Phil. So I'll say that's 1A. Then let me hit on 1B and, and I'll open it up to you. Okay. 1B is in these a somewhat similar circumstance when it is injury rehab or strength supplementation. So there's an overlap that's um, with 1A and that you're doing your aerobic work perhaps because you're coming back from injury. Uh, but also this could be the swimming or rowing type exercise where we're just trying to work on other parts of the body. We're trying to uh, get away from, the, again, that those load impacts. For example, just a more balanced training. Some people fall into that overuse bucket and just keep doing the same thing over and over. You think about a runner, we're moving in a straight line constantly and we're, and we're pounding the same muscles and we're not using the other stuff. And if we don't buttress those things, we leave ourselves exposed to a higher injury risk. Thoughts on buckets 1A and B, Phil? No, I, I think... Really, to me, this is the biggest bucket for cross-training. And from an injury perspective, can we use this to supplement the amount of aerobic training that we are able to do while limiting the load from a, like a musculoskeletal perspective? Yeah. You know, if I look at what like our, particularly our women's team out at Furman does, often a lot of them will substitute that midweek medium long run for a longer session on the bike. So instead of particularly those with a significant injury history, instead of going out and you know hitting 10 miles on a Wednesday, they're on the bike for two hours. So they're getting a, a solid aerobic stimulus, but they're not getting the same impact that they would for a, an hour to an hour and 15 minute run. And as well, I think for those that have have an injury, injury history and have kind of tapped out for one reason or another, the amount of running volume that they can handle. This is a fantastic way to supplement that and just add a little bit more time developing that aerobic system. You know, that that interview with Sakiko was, you know, fantastic in that she really found out a way that worked for her, you know, coming off the stress fractures and the injuries that she had to really maintain a high level of fitness with the limitations that she she currently has. So mm-hmm. I think that's to me, that's the the biggest place where this where cross training fits. You know, I, I don't think that running 50% of the miles that you may be able to handle and supplementing just a little bit more aerobic work is the ticket to getting faster. But if you are tapped out on what your musculoskeletal system can handle from an impact perspective, adding more time on you know, whether it's the bike or the pool, the elliptical or whatever. Uh, adding more time there really could make a difference from a performance perspective. As an extension to that, Phil, it's important as an athlete uh, that you examine why 
you have that injury history that puts you in a place, as you said, that instead of a medium long run, I need to be on the bike. You could be making the right decision. And that, that can be, as you said, potentially a great spot to employ cross-training modalities. But if we do that and just ignore the training history of injuries and don't consider what we need to do moving into the future to try to reduce that beyond just this cross-training on a bike, uh, we're selling ourselves a little bit short in, mm-hmm. into reaching our potential for the future. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, second bucket in its two parts. Uh, one is it would seem from Parker, Va- Parker Valby that she's doing some quality sessions within her cross training. And so it's not just the easy aerobic work that's replacing your easy run or your medium long run or your double run, but it's getting your quality work on, say, an elliptical or an arc trainer, et cetera. I'm going to pivot off that just a bit to my 2B, where I think there is a space to be explored. I've mentioned this here briefly before. Uh, We're seeing research into it. I'm fascinated. Do you potentially add a harder session, like a VO2 max session, as an addition to your typical training that you're already doing, or move your most intense session to cross-training to reduce? to induce the stimulus while reducing the load impact. So could this be a a place to add more quality to your training because you're not getting the pounding on the ground? It would seem from the triathlon world examples, to go back to the Norwegian model, they, they do dabble in Backen's idea of triple sessions. Is this possibly the place? Now, I'm not prescribing this for anyone as we speak, but it it does seem like an area of intrigue that I look forward to seeing more research and more examples in practice um, that you might be able to do something like 30 second intervals on the bike, on a stationary bike at VO2 max with, you know, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off type of thing uh, where you can induce that stimulus, but you don't have the load of hitting the ground. So here's where I think that misses, though. And, and I, I'll take your point. I think you're to a degree, I, I think we're on the right track. But there is also something to be said for hitting those higher intensities, whether it's threshold or VO2 max work in our main sport because of the like, neuromuscular carryover that we get from that. You know, I, I, a lot of times with running training, we get so caught up on the cardiovascular development. And yes, we can elicit those changes through other modalities with a bike or a swim or whatever. But from a performance perspective, there are also changes occurring to the tendons and the tissues and the, you know, your, your nervous system when you are training those systems at those paces. That being said, though, I think, you know, here for a, let's call it a recreational marathoner is where there may be a significant role for a double threshold session where you know say in the morning you go out and you do your main run as a threshold workout but you go out later in the day for you know at lunchtime or at the end of the day hit another threshold session but this time you do it on the bike so you're getting two cardiovascular stimuli but then the next day you're having an easy day of whatever the workout is so you you're consolidating a whole lot of work into that one day, but then the next day you're you know, recovering as you, as you normally would. Absolutely. 
great point. I'm assuming in in my uh, example of doing that additional harder session and cross training that you're doing like threshold style work or steady efforts within your main sport. Okay, that you are running and doing those. Uh, there, there's principles of specificity, of course, to consider. Yeah. So this, I'm looking at this more as uh, an addition rather than a substitution. Mm-hmm possibly being an area, again, I'm not doing this right now. I'm just very fascinated by it because I think it, it could have some potential. Mm-hmm. Anything else on the cross-training field before we go on to number three? I think really the, the, the last question that I have raised, and we, we touched on at the beginning of this point, but I'd honestly just like to see Parker Valby's logs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, well, I'm fully on board that she is probably not running as much higher as much mileage as the majority for competition. But, you know, if I look at some of the work that I've seen with our women out at Furman and that high NCAA level, you know, there are a lot of folks that are doing a lot of cross training that are not getting the results nearly to the degree that she is. So yeah. I, I, I just like to see under the hood, but I know that's not going to happen. So let's move on <laughs> to the next point. <laughs> well, two pieces before we go. One is uh, – with any of these training approaches, it's about the individual responder. We're all an N of one. Maybe she responds to stuff more than others do in this certain instance. Two is, I don't even know that the logs would show us everything if we had them. You know, Seb Coe could show you his training logs from 40 years ago. The guy didn't log his easy miles. That that wasn't training to him. So (laughs) it, it would give you a very biased picture of what he actually did. Yeah. Okay, let's go to number three. This one uh, garnered a lot of interest around Chicago Marathon time this year as Kelvin Kiptum set a new world record for marathon. The just sheer quantity of running he did, coupled with the quantity of quality that he did. Mm-hmm. I'm going to begin by quoting his kind of coach, advisor, the guy who gave him advice and seems to have become more significant in his training over the past year or two, spoke to a, a, a French running magazine. And I'm going to go through this quote, kind of their outline, and then a typical week, and we'll break it down a little bit more. So, um, Coach said, quote, every week, Elliot Kipchoge does between 180 and 220 kilometers. Kelvin is more between 250 and 280. To translate, we're talking about 150, 160, 170 on the mileage, sometimes more than 300 kilometers. So that'd be over 180. It's an adventure, he says. During the preparation for London, we did three weeks of more than 300 kilometers. He has a very large volume. He works a lot on endurance. When he trains, he is strong. He wouldn't be the first to do this. We know plenty of the Japanese runners have been uh, up at these numbers. Uh, look at our uh, LA 84 series that I'm doing. Rewind just like Bill, Wa- Bill Rogers training. He went up to these numbers occasionally as well. Coach continues, our marathon program is established over four months with a lot of bodybuilding and strengthening at the start. I would suspect that's essential to be able to handle this. Uh, the first month he runs around 900 kilometers, like 550 miles in total. Uh, the second month is 170 to 180 per week. And then in the fourth month, we gradually reduce the volume. Uh, which, you know, before the race, kind of a taper makes some sense. And and so then we got an idea of what his typical week looks like. Uh, Monday, 
This is a jogging in the morning, 25-ish K or so. So 15-ish miles, uh, somewhere around uh, low to mid six pace. He's going to come back out and jog in the afternoon for 12K. Tuesday, we're going to get a workout. For example, a fart lick, like three minutes fast, one easy. It's always done for an hour. And then he comes back with a double again, 12 easy kilometers in the afternoon. Wednesday looks like Monday, that longer run in the morning, easier double in the afternoon. Thursday, uh, this is uh, much like the Kipchoge group does. uh, Often Thursday is the long run. Between 30 and 40 kilometers close to marathon pace, incredibly specific running and challenging running. No double that day. Thank goodness you earned it, Kelvin. He is going to do Friday is going to look like Monday and Wednesday. Saturday, we're going to do a workout like Tuesday. So you might go on the track or do road fartlek. And then this is an intriguing one where Sunday again looks like Thursday. So it's that long, specific run uh, between 32 and 40 kilometers at a fast pace. He's off again in the afternoon. Closest training that we've discussed, uh, Phil, in that Road to 84 series to rewind to what guys were doing four decades ago, I think is probably Di Costella with yeah. the long run. And then the, the midweek long run was almost as, as long. Yeah. Uh, they picked the tempo up on that. It was hilly. He did s- multiple sessions in a week. The sessions just weren't quite as long. These are longer, more marathon-specific sessions. Uh, Coach uh, then wraps it up. There is no weekly rest. We rest when he gets tired. So they might take an off day, but it's not planned. I love this comment on the lifestyle of a pro. He only runs, eats, sleeps. There's a small group that gathers around him, but I only take care of him. The others have the right to follow. But during the difficult sessions, he is alone. That's where he goes fast. And then the last comment, he is in the best years, but at one point, I'm afraid he'll get injured. At this rate, he risks breaking. I suggested he lower the pace, but he doesn't want to. He talks to me all, talks to me about the world record all the time. I told him in five years he would be done, that he must calm down to last in athletics. Uh, that's probably some wisdom there. But if he is a short-term, you know, a flash in the pan, uh, it's a pretty good flash, isn't it, Phil? Well, at that point, it's almost what does it matter? Then it's the whole debate of, you know, would you rather have a – a career where you're just off your potential that lasts for a couple of decades, or would you rather blow it out in a couple of years, but really leave a huge, huge mark. And we've already seen that just in the past what year and a half with the performances that he's had. Yeah. But I mean, I think his coach is, is absolutely dead on that. You know, how sustainable is this over the long term? Yeah. We began the year, I was thinking it was maybe early February with uh, professor Andy Jones in mile 143. One of the points he made was balancing quality and volume and trying to run as much of of each as possible up to the tipping point. And that quote at the end about potentially kept him going beyond his breaking point made me think of Andy Jones because Jones would suggest, well, the Kipchoge model, uh, or even he would raise like a Steve Jones example from the 80s. It was even slightly lower volume, but the quality was very high. The the Kipchoge quality is high, probably comparably easier, easy days uh, when we look against uh, uh, Steve Jones, a world record holder from nearly 40 years ago. But the longevity 
of a Kipchoge is one of his great qualities, right? And and he has gone to the precipice. We will see if Kelvin Kiptum has gone over that cliff. What's interesting to me here is an athlete that Andy Jones worked with extensively, Paula Radcliffe. I think she might have the most comparable marathon schedule in, in my memory, where there were long bouts of tempo, long bouts of steady running, long bouts of marathon running within her sessions uh, that were very frequent. You know, she might every other day, sometimes she back to back days uh, have kind of a, an up tempo or steady effort and then a workout. What it allows for is so much running to be done at or near race pace. And we know there's value in that. It's just how much of it can you handle? You, you have to be an outlier to handle it at the Kiptum level. But with each of these training approaches, it seems that is a commonality, whether we're doing it with threshold running, which, you know, if you're training for 10K half marathon, it's, it's actually very specific work. There's some suggestion that Parker Valby's doing uh, large amounts of cross training that are at or near race pace. In this model, Kiptum is doing nothing that looks like what the Norwegians do, mm -hmm. but he is getting huge chunks of work at probably similar paces in, in some. I like that linkage and commonality among the three, Phil, because that to me is something we can take away that you don't want to press it to the tipping points, but maybe we all uh, kind of evaluate how much work we're doing in each of the zones and where we need to dial that back and where we could increase it potentially. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the other takeaway may be from you know, the trend perspective, number one is just the, the amount of volume that he is doing. You're seeing some other guys, particularly you know, Cam Levins is one that comes to mind that yeah. they're ramping that training up to as much as they can handle to try to just stay at this level. Mm -hmm. uh, but number two, like the amount of, work that's being done at that specific intensity, you know, whether it's, you know, the Ingebrigtsen's around threshold or whether it's Kiptum around, you know, marathon pace, is that something that, you know, we might want to consider applying, which, you know, I'm somewhat reluctant to suggest is, you know, particularly at least at my level and probably for most of our audience, the becoming more generally fit across the ranges is going to be more effective for, for race yeah. performance of what I like to do. but. I'm also not trying to break a world record here. Maybe this is this is what it takes. Yeah, a couple of thoughts, Phil. One, with this amount of marathon effort running he's doing, I suspect by the end of it, he's crossing toward critical speeds. Like yeah. he's he's probably getting the intensity that's similar to uh, what the Ingerbritsons do when they're running even faster for for shorter bouts. It's an important reminder that as we talk about all these examples, as we try to take lessons from them. Do not take lessons in the distance that they cover, but consider those lessons in the time it takes to cover those distances. I don't know the exact numbers, but Kiptum doing, say, 30 kilometers at marathon pace, well, if we just look at his numbers on how fast he runs a marathon, that's at most 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. okay? That does not suggest that the three-hour marathoner needs to go out and always cover 30 kilometers near marathon pace, because that might be well over two hours of work. Well, and to build on that, the race that he is training for is uh, not the race that you're training for or the race that I'm training for. 
Yeah. You know, it, what's happening physiologically, metabolically, structurally that you or I are experiencing is totally different than what he is experiencing just within those within those two hours. Yeah, so. that structurally, those those load impacts beyond two hours just feel so exponential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, yeah, it, it's the fueling and how that changes what's happening physiologically and metabolically beyond two hours that I think it's a significant difference even from two to say two and a half to three to four, each of those stepping stones, it's, it's dramatic differences. I think a point that needs to be raised in the context of all these that I, I raise it not to, to raise questions about the individual athletes, but we need to consider historically with folks who we know have been caught for PED use. One of the greatest advantages that they had were those drugs helped them recover quicker. It was not mm-hmm. that they inherently made the athlete faster. It was it made the athlete recover faster and recover, allowed him to do more work. It could recover more deeply so that I could do more work. And that's a, a caution with any of these systems because there's a lot of work here. And, and we just don't know. We could see the training logs, Phil, and still not know mm-hmm. because we're not there 24 hours a day. You know, I have confidence that you're not uh, on some sort of banned supplement. <laughs> but the only person that I can speak for with true authority is myself because mm-hmm. I'm the only one that I am with 24 hours a day. Just consider that in, in thinking about how much quality they're getting. That in complement, in tandem with the lifestyle of a professional athlete makes recovery a whole lot different than what it might be for the average person. Mm-hmm. Phil, this has been fun. Let's wrap it here uh, on the big training topics of 2023. I can't wait to see what the new trend is in 2024 and no one is doing any of these things any longer. We'll break that <laughs> down in 12 months, buddy. Uh, we will start 2024 by uh, looking ahead at some stuff we're excited about, but we'll also look back at, at some of the biggest stuff from from 23. So we'll do that on an episode soon, Phil. It's uh, It's been great having you. Glad to hear you had a great holiday. Enjoy Disney, my friend. For the- uh, we'll talk before then, man. We we can go over the uh, the training and the plans that have been put in place for our uh, our siege of Disney World. <laughs> All right, I look forward to it. For the audience, enjoy your week of running, and we wish you nothing but the best for a healthy 2024, where you get to enjoy this sport, enjoy your friends, enjoy your family, uh, and we will see you next time on Mile 167 of Seconds Flat. Take care.